Restart. Be Real is brought to you by the MFA in Writing program at California College of the Arts in San Francisco. Their two-year program has launched Molly Prentice, Adam Nemet, and Julie Lithcott-Hames. Come write with them. Learn more about CCA's den of poets, raconteurs, playwrights, and novelists at cca.edu slash writingmfa. You can talk about film with a philosopher's zeal or measure them all by box office appeal but for once in your life be real welcome one and all to be real your movie reviewing and reappraising podcast sometimes in life folks you you jump on the horn to talk about what you think are going to be like three sort of dark non-traditional indie superhero stories and they all end up being about essentially a demon's right to choose and that's what we're here to talk about today uh my name is chance solem pfeiffer and i'm noah ballard how are you friend i'm okay i have a little bit of the the beginnings of a cold here but uh otherwise hanging in there how are Are you you? sure you don't have the beginnings of the second half of your life and that's the problem do you think I've died and I've now come back to avenge the podcast? I was more referring to the fact that you were recently 30, my good buddy. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I, I just turned 30 on Friday and then had a nice weekend with some pals upstate New York. So that was fun. Yeah, Cheers. I'm feeling, I mean, I feel horrible, but <laughs> emotionally I feel great. That's that's all that counts. Um and we are very pleased on today's show to be joined for the rare all three movies in it to win it guest, uh, the author of the forthcoming novel We Can Save Us All, Adam and Matt. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks for having me, guys. Long time listener, first time <laughs> something. First, first time experiment. Uh, thanks for being with us through these movies, too. Oh, boy. Yeah. We are going to talk about 1994's The Shadow. 1997 Spawn and 2004's Hellboy, and I was not joking. Noah, we didn't know that all these movies were about demons when we elected to watch them, did we? No, we we literally only picked them because they were like non DC, non Marvel comic book characters, and I thought that would like play nicely with Adam's book being about superheroes who are non. Marvel DC and it's also coming out from unnamed press which is an indie press so it it felt like it made sense in my mind but then when we actually started watching them it's just three demons from hell who happen to be superhero movies. I think it's pretty on brand yeah basically yeah so well very good uh Adam your book's out November the 13th and congrats it's super good thank um, you very much I'm really excited and I have Noah to thank for the whole thing I'm wringing my hands right now <laughs> Uh, I want to talk about it just a little bit up front here and uh, just a a bit about the book. Is it too uh, gauche of me to just ask you for the elevator pitch to get people interested rather than me ramble about it for a couple minutes? No, I don't think so. I'm kind of curious to hear Noah do the elevator pitch, but I'll do it. Oh, God. I'll do it. I'll do it. You do Why do you do it? I've been been telling people it's about uh, a group of Ivy League students who – respond to escalating climate change by moving off campus into a geodesic dome and forming what becomes an end times cult based on superheroes and fueled by psychedelic drugs. Usually when I tell people that, you kind of see them kind of roll roll down the hill with the with with the bitch and they're like, okay, 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 okay. Nice. But yeah, it's uh it was started a long time ago and I think um, I think at the time I saw it as sort of speculative speculative fiction and, and today it feels uh, frighteningly uh, frighteningly realistic and kind of just around the corner especially we're recording this on the eve of the midterm election so uh, this is true sort of a fever pitch of fear and paranoia in this country and that's kind of where we pick up our intrepid one of these superheroes in my novel so I want to ask you about, you can talk about it in relation to the book or just personally, Adam. Uh, I was curious, there's this great moment kind of early in the book where the protagonist, David, um, is dressed as Batman and he's sort of outlining his love of comic books. And then like one of his friends like calls him out for some 
like vague inaccuracy about like Bane's mask and David shoots back uh my relationship to superheroes is mystical not fundamentalist is that your feeling about superheroes too I think you've hit on the line that is most me uh of any line in the book I I don't I don't think I am the main character by any stretch but that line I think is very uh accurate um people Mm. people assume because I've read this book about superheroes that I was just like crazy into comics growing up. Um, and you know, I, I like, I read some comic books, uh, as, as, as we all do. Um, but, uh, I never really kind of fell in love hook, line and sinker with the comic book medium the way I think a lot of, uh, a lot of like true, true geeks do. And I'd say that in the best sense of the word, I, I have a lot of uh, respect for anyone who kind of goes deep on any sort of subject or medium that really just gets into it. Um, but that was, that, that kind of wasn't me. And maybe it's cause I grew up in the eighties and you know, um, there were movies. I mean, <laughs> they were like, I, I sort of always felt like comic books were sort of trying a lot of comic books, not all, uh, uh, but a lot were sort of trying to be, you know, the storyboard for a movie. And maybe if you grow up in the, in the thirties or forties, you know, when, when those kinds of amazing, uh, scenes are just not possible to do on film, you know, you, you have comic books to kind of create that magic for you. But if you grow up in the eighties and nineties and there's, you know, special effects, even if they're terrible, um, you can kind of go, go right to, right to the, you know, the punchline there and, and watch Superman or watch Batman do their thing. So yeah, I, I don't know. I'm not a comic book expert, um, but I do have a, a, a certain relationship to superheroes, I guess. Well, that's what attracted me to the book initially was the idea that, and Chance knows this very well, that I'm not a comic book person either. But it sort of, so it felt like a novel written for someone like me who is interested in this sort of mythology, but not necessarily like I just can't. I just don't have like the thing one needs to like read a comic book. Like I just bounce all around the pages and like can't make any sense of it. And like, how do you suspend disbelief when you like know what's going to happen in the next frame because it's right there? But with this with this book, it, it allowed you to like tell those stories that I did find compelling from you know film adaptations and stuff like that, and render it in a way that's like okay, this makes sense to me. Yeah, and you know, I think my other problem with comic books, and maybe you have this being a a literary guy, is uh, I, I mean, there's some great great comic book writers, but I felt like so often I would read something and the, the dialogue just felt like really silly without being funny. <laughs> you know, it was just like uh, campy, w- w- unintentionally so, and and I kind of felt like there's a better line there, or there's a better way to to get at that idea. And I think that speaks to some of the problems with the movies today, but, uh, uh-huh. that we're going to talk about. Um, but you know, I, 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 I grew up, you know, reading, reading books and watching movies. And I felt like a lot of the comics that I would read were just sort of inferior on, on some level in terms of the storytelling uh, with some major exceptions. I mean, there's some great, you know, people like Alan Moore and, Grant Morrison and, and Warren Ellis. There's some great comic book writers, but uh, or graphic novelists, but um, that just wasn't my experience as a 12 year old. You know what I sort of like is the uh, maybe Adam, you watch these the those old. 1993 Warner Brother Batman the Animated Series. Oh, Mask of the Phantasm. Uh, oh yeah, followed up by the Mask of the Phantasm. I loved. Batman the Animated Series. I would watch that every day. I think it was either before or after Animaniacs. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. right. They were programmed it together, was, though. It was it was a pretty solid uh, double shot there on my, my after-school TV watching. Uh, and yeah, I mean, you know, cartoon versions, movie versions. I loved the first Superman, like, like to, a, to a frightening degree, to the point where I, my parents tell me that I wore a cape uh, like out to like the supermarket until I was about four and a half or five uh, all the time, and so I, and I think you I wore a cape to brunch the other day. I did, I did. It was sometimes it's under my clothes, sometimes just just out there for all to see. But uh, you know, I think there's a certain element of superheroes that's really compelling, and that idea of just wanting to to um, be bigger than yourself. I think we can all relate to that. 
I think it's interesting for you too, the idea of, well, the book's a campus novel as well. And coming up with, I mean, these movies today are all about this, but like the backstories for these people and like what inspires them, not only sort of aesthetically, but their identities too, of like what they stand for. And some of them are a little bit more contrived than others in these movies. But in your book, you endeavor to do both explaining where these kids came from, you know, in their high school experiences, but then that formative college thing that's like, now I am businessman, now I am whatever. Like, tell us a little bit about how do you how do you render a believable backstory that balances humanity and that hyper real whatever? Sure, um, I, I think origin stories are by far the most in. in- the most interesting thing about superheroes. I think once they're already fully formed and just like at the top of their game, it's like these 17 superheroes against like all the aliens of the apocalypse in this massive CGI battle. And like who would win in a fight between these 12 aliens and Iron Man like that, that doesn't interest me that much because I I think I don't understand the rules of like, well, how do you kill this monster? And Oh, fire. And I, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't know that I get into that, but watching a character go from ordinary to extraordinary, going from you know a, a regular Joe to kind of tapping into whatever thing it is that that makes them heroic, whether it's some kind of you know inborn ability or whether it's uh, something they kind of stumble on, like you know, whoops, I just tripped into this nuclear reactor and now I'm a this. Or, or whether it's, you know, the, the kind of self-made Batman types who, uh, or Iron Man who kind of figure out a way to make themselves greater through science or technology. Um, that's what's fascinating to me about the, the genre. And so I think, you know, in, in my book, I tried to look at these characters in a formative period of, of college and each of them, you know, maybe rather than choosing a major because you know they're they're living through this period of extreme climate change, where the idea of a liberal arts education and going on to some some job um, is less that's less realistic than okay, how do I survive in in kind of a, a situation where the this where civilization is breaking down? What are the skills that I have or that I can cultivate or that I can learn uh, that would carry me through here? And how do I team up with people who have other skills and, and together we form this, you know, collective that can kind of get through the next phase, whatever it might bring. Well, very good. Uh, should we get into the first uh, first movie? Yeah, and I feel like we can turn back to Adam as as need be. Yeah, Adam, uh, please bring up your bring up your book as we go. And also right. your uh, graphic novel, because we got to talk about hell a little bit. <laughs> There's a lot of hell in, in these three movies, which I wasn't expecting And I have questions either. about how to make hell interesting. Um, Cause I'm not sure these movies pull it Is off. it by making it on Microsoft it's Word? <laughs> thing that falls into this. <laughs> it also falls into the, I don't know what the rules are here. Right. Yeah. Yes. Big problem. <laughs> Let's start with 1994's The Shadow. Okay, so The Shadow uh, has gone through a number of incarnations. It's the oldest of the, of the comics you're going to be talking about today. Started in the 30s, with kind of like pulpy dime store uh, novels. And there were a number of like cheap movies made through the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Some radio dramas, including one worked on uh, by famously by Orson Welles. But this movie, 1994, directed by Russell Mulcahy, who we'd know best from the Highlander films, which feels like exactly the right sort of like messy mythological nonsense that would put him in a position to... <laughs> To yeah. land on this well, he's movie. coming off of making Ricochet too, which is a truly okay. dreadful Denzel Washington film. And Lithgow. That's right. Lithgow is the bad guy. That movie, I think it's on HBO. It's bad. <laughs> Did he do Real McCoy also, or was that a different one of these? Guys? I think that's right. I think you know from the first scene, though, that this movie's not going to make a lot of sense. Am I right? I think you know from I mean, the credits where the music is done by Jellybean Benitez. <laughs> That was the first thing that caught my eye, was old, sure. Je- old Jellybean Benitez. But yeah, I can't make heads or tails of the origin story here. Like, Alec Baldwin is like this, some sort of religious slash drug dealer guy. <laughs> he's some sort and of opium baron in Tibet. He's like an opium baron, but they also like worship him as a king. Right. right. And, his, and his name is Lamont Cranston. 
which is right. great. But he also has this other like Mongolian name, like Ying Ko or something. That's right. Some guy shows up after he murders this other guy and is like, <laughs> we're going to make you the shadow, Lamont Cranston. And he's like, oh, what? And then that knife bites him. And then it's seven years later in New York City and he's the shadow. He goes to hell and then he comes back and he is like this sort of um, like Zorro detective pistolier who is like not a particularly moral figure, but like will also fuck you up if you're a gangster who happens to be like throwing innocent bystanders off bridges. Um, So very unclear how he was created, who he is or what he wants. We're set up for a great story, I think. Um, yeah, who he is, what he wants, who trained him, what his ultimate mission is. Right. He's just sort of this man about town who's like pretty. <laughs> he's pretty selective about like what Asian themed crime he wants to stop. Right. right. Noah, you mentioned this, but I don't understand if he's supposed to be disguised or or if everyone knows who he is. In the it's it's a little unclear right. like how how hidden he really is, um, which is, which is odd. His big disguise is like a red scarf and a a giant nose. Right. Right. He just like becomes this like sort of magical, like Jewish propaganda (laughs) film kind of character and fights crime and then goes back to being right. Yeah. Yeah. He started, he dresses up like an Orthodox Jew and he goes and fights crime and then he like, takes off his trench coat and his hat and his big nose and reveals he's just a waspy man about town. It's just me, Alec Baldwin. (laughs) What I think is really funny is when he transforms, to my eyes, he looks a lot like Billy Baldwin. So I think he just transforms into like his most fucked up brother. Sure. It's a young, it's a young Alec Baldwin. And I feel like part of why I, why I like him in this is it, it, it seemed, and I don't know his exact, like where this sits in his filmography, but it, it seems to hit like right in between where he goes from being this like leading man all the time to being a, a true comedic actor. Like I think a, that's right. You know, and I think he's much better as a as a comedic actor than he ever was in a leading role, a leading man kind of you know swashbuckling type role. And you can see like little little hints of that coming out where he he seems to be in on the joke of this movie, even if no one else is. Yeah, this is like right after. Like Malice and Glen Gary, Glen Ross, yeah, where he's exactly. just like, "Give me a big juicy part." Like yeah. I don't care how ridiculous it is. Yeah, he's. I, you know, I have. You yeah. can't. Yeah, this uh, coffee or for big actors only. <laughs> yeah. He became the shadow. If I didn't see anything, I swear. Dump him. Ah! Ah! <laughs> Who's there? Did you think you'd get away with it? Did you think I? Wouldn't know. Now, when the world is in danger, report. Police investigation of murder. Agent advises inquiry. Who knows what powers stir in the night? Whenever you did, it's in the past. Join me. Inside you beats a heart of darkness. I do what I do to fight back the evil inside me, but some part of it is still there. He has fun when the movie realizes that's okay for that to happen. Like, there's that whole thing. You know who else is having fun occasionally is John Lone, who plays the supervillain of this movie, uh, the last yeah. descendant of Genghis Khan. Yep. <laughs> Shaiwan Khan. <laughs> um, but sometimes they'll just sit down at a table and in between talking about uh, what demon possessed them and when, they'll talk about Brooks Brothers and whether that's in Midtown. And no, that's like a throwback to the... Like the advertising in the original radio show I was oh reading. i didn't know that i didn't catch that either. there are a couple references in there where they like pan around things or they'll say a line like that that's a throwback to how ridiculous it would be when the like actors would have to throw to like some spot <laughs> copy some product placement i did not I didn't, right i just thought that was the best part of the movie <laughs> i feel like one oh, other man. interesting holdover of the radio drama form is his laugh he does this thing where he, you know, he'll cavernously laugh and all of a sudden like these tiny rooms will become uh, caverns um, and it'll, his laugh will echo off the wall and the person will know like my time is coming, the shadow is coming for me. In a filmic sense, I don't think it works at all because <laughs> um, why is he laughing and it gives away where he is, but 
it does feel like a sonic holdover from another medium. Definitely, because like the bounce when I was wearing headphones listening to this, like he bounces back and forth, but it's like between oh. like your your ears too. But it, it doesn't. Well, this, this leads to a bigger problem that I have with this movie is this like what is his power? Like he can kind of be invisible, but he's not like trans. He's translucent, but he's not like he can be shot, and like you can make out his feet if he like walks in water. But so he's not omnipresent. He's just he has the ability to throw his voice and be I think invisible. I think technically, at least going back to what I know of the radio show, he has the ability to cloud men's minds. Yeah, he's not. Yeah, he, only if he like focuses really well. If he loses focus, he's fucked. Right. Because then the demon knife will show up again. Then the demon, the demon knife is always there. And for people who haven't seen this movie, just to paint a little bit of a radio picture here for you, the demon knife is your like standard issue dagger, except on like the <laughs> the main holding part of it, there's this like demon metal face that comes alive. I think only when Alec Baldwin's playing with because like that that knife hates him. Yeah, it fucking hates him. He's like and a so the beginning, it bites monkey. his hand with the little mouth, and then it's coming back for its revenge two or three more times. You know how, like, most superhero movies or, you know, any movie with, like, a big baddie villain, there, there's always kind of, like, the number two villain that you have to, like, the... The, the number two is the knife. Yeah, number two in this movie is this demon knife in, like, early CGI world, which is... Not a compelling number two, but is maybe it is. Maybe it's really great. I can't figure it out because I don't know if they're if they're kidding or not. I don't right. know either. Yeah, that's you know that's the the trouble that's with this movie. Is, how much of this movie is joking? I was watching this with my wife, like on the other side of the couch, doing work, being like, "I this is absurd. I'm not watching this." And every so often, I just start cracking up, and she would look over and she was like, "Is this a comedy?" And I was like, "I don't." No. Sometimes. I, I don't know if it knows if it's trying to be or if that's kind of the brilliance of it or if it's but I ultimately I don't I don't think it knows that. I and I don't think it's brilliant either. There's also like some weird kind of like um I don't know, Schadenfreude mixed with uh like Adam West Batman humor, like when Jimmy Barrett from Mad Men gets thrown off the Empire State Building and in the background is dying right as the shadow goes, it's all falling into place. <laughs> it's not a particularly tasteful <laughs> or that fun. I mean, I'm laughing now, but it's not great. I was going to say I think the the humor of this film really rests in the supporting cast, which is Tremendous if totally underutilized, especially Peter Boyle. Like he's got some funny lines when they're like waiting for that building to appear or whatever. And he's just like standing there um, with the girlfriend, Margo. And just like, I tell you what I love about this job is the excitement. (laughs) (laughs) Can can Um, we talk about Tim Curry and Ian McKellen both being in this movie, both doing like American accents? Like, sure. I, I think, I think those are American accents. Like for two of the best actors in this movie, they have fairly few lines and they're all delivered terribly. And I, th- and I think, and I think it's because they're both trying to do like stilted American accents, but the scenes with the two of them in it do like sparring in this terrible way. It's like both of them are sparring, but they can only use their left hand. And uh-huh. like, it's really funny to watch. It's unclear to me why either of them agreed to do this movie. It's the, I've they, thought that about so many of these actors in all of these movies. Why is Jonathan Winters in this movie? <laughs> As in a completely unfunny commissioner of police. It's Yep. The tones, the tones are just all over the place and it's such a sign of like a bad 90s movie. Like a it's really vying for bad good. Um I guess we can talk about whether it gets there. Um Adam, any feeling as our sort of superhero scholar on, like, what... Do you have a theory about who the Shadow is or what he's doing? Or just, like, what is this movie not getting right at all? Well, you know, I don't know enough about the Shadow, but I know enough about Batman to know that the Shadow was maybe... Other than Zorro, I think, was probably the main influence on Bob Kane and Bill Finger creating Batman in the late 30s. You know, the Shadow was this 
you know, millionaire playboy man about town who moonlit as, as a as a superhero, as a kind of costumed, uh, you know, black mask, half face showing superhero. I think what's interesting about this isn't uh, so much the characters as the the special effects or the practical effects, and I, I think that's worth talking about with all three of these because I think that's why so many of these superhero movies didn't get made at all until the you know mid eighties, early you know early nineties, and then they start moving in the direction to where we are today with crazy CGI battles like you've never seen in three D and whatever. But th- there were there were some like kind of cool special effects in this or practical effects where like the floor is moving and it's clearly like an actual, you know, constructed floor that's almost on this like top. Oh, I like that part. You yeah, know, there were some great like sets, great set mm-hmm. design in this in this film. And it's wasted on like a really shitty script, but they could they could maybe, you know, create certain kinds of set pieces that were almost impossible to create before and like add in a flying CGI demon knife and some, some magic elements that just would have been really, really hard to do with practical effects. Cause I think that like, at least it really commits to all the practical effects here in a way that's like not horrible to watch here in 2018. And like, at least it tried to do a little something with, you know, making leaps into that. Of course, it's not Avengers. Of course, it's not Infinity War. This is from 1994. And at least, like, it's not just in one fucking alleyway, like that fucking Spawn movie that we'll talk about (laughs) in a second. But, like, this one really goes for it. There's some nice, like, very Batman-y kind of, like, cityscapes and, like, flying across buildings. And I really liked the the visuals for that like pipe system that sort of like sends the letters around. Like it's very sort of like grimy Burton-y kind of like this infrastructure exists, even though you don't know it, Yeah, you know, kind of thing. I think this one, while being a stupid movie that doesn't make much sense is highly watchable. And I found it pretty entertaining. I'm going to go bad. Good. I think, I guess I'll be the grouch. I think, I think this movie is, pretty terrible i think uh lamont cranston was a strong safety for the giants in 1988 and is not an alec baldwin (laughs) character name um i think yeah most of what makes it credible is the fact that it's just the outline of tim burton's batman uh you know superimposed onto a movie where three quarters of the way through baldwin goes he's hypnotized the entire city of new york to hide a building that i don't understand even now why it needed to be hidden um, or what was there or what was in that lot or what was the difference i'm gonna give it a bad bad do i get to raid two yes please, please. oh wow this is a big moment for me guys uh you know i I'm think you only also, have two choices <laughs> i'm gonna go i'm gonna go bad bad good also because uh of the next two movies <laughs> i need to throw a good in here somewhere and i think also looking at this in the context, I, I try to look at this in the context of the other superhero movies going on at the time. And you had Batman in 89, which was like far better than this movie. But the other movies around the same time that were attempting to do superheroes were like the Toxic Avenger, which is clearly trying to be campy. And things like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which I've heard your, your pod on Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Um, Great film. You know, <laughs> Sergeant Kabuki Man, NYPD, I think is around <laughs> the same time. So, I mean, in the context of some of these, uh, it, it's it's kind of of its time trying to attempt something. You know what else came around this time, you guys, is uh, 1997 Spawn, which is what we're <laughs> going to talk about next. This, uh, this is based on some comics that debuted... Uh, pretty close to when the movie came out. I think the first issue of Spawn came out in 92, if my internet research is right. It is directed uh, by Mark Dippa, who was like a big visual effects guy in the like late 80s, early 90s. He was... Uh, Turns out that's not a qualification to direct a motion picture. <laughs> Especially if you're like an early adopter of digital and believe it can do everything. Because it does not do that here. Uh, but he worked in Jurassic Park and The Abyss and Terminator 2 and some groundbreaking... Uh, visual effects movies at the time but his resume as a director is this and halloween town high (laughs) and garfield a lot of garfield 
That is true. Um, and a forthcoming Marmaduke project because the Garfield he couldn't get out of his system. The newspaper. Uh, the Garfield work dried up. He, he sort of you know he did everything he could with that franchise, and it was really just time to explore something new. From the I dog's think, point of view, but that's amazing. The CGI that he did, that that like the 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 abyss uh, water pod arm yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. That that is, I believe, the first uh, both the first like true CGI character in film history. Uh, and it was also, I only know this because I, I did their, their 20th anniversary as part of my mild mannered day job at the history factory. But, uh, that was, uh, the beginning of Photoshop was that weird pseudopod was oh. how, fo- how the program Photoshop was invented. Um, and I mean the T 1000, I, I remember that at the time being completely mind blowing. I saw that as a, as a, a teenager, I forget what year it was, but I remember that, you know, I thought that was just the cat's pajamas. So totally. he, 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 he wasn't wrong that like really good CGI could do something pretty spectacular with a movie. It's just, it, it was not this movie. <laughs> this he might've needed a visionary as his boss is what the resume <laughs> suggests. Yes. Um, yeah, so Spawn is uh, about this uh, super soldier <laughs> named uh, Al Simmons. Um, a great name. No, it's not. Played by it's, it's like, like another like tight end for the New York Giants in the early nineties or Al something. Al Simmons, Lamont Cranston, <laughs> Lamont Cranston. Oh man, we are most of our way to an NFC Championship here. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know he's indiscriminately murdering people at the beginning of the movie, so that makes his character hard to. Uh, yeah, I should for say a that. shadowy offshoot of the CIA or something. A six. He, he's blowing up planes with the movie leads us to believe evil Muslims on them, but there's massive civilian casualties. Um, right. And the Martin, carnage is high with all these like little missions he does. Uh, but Martin Sheen. <laughs> well, that's why he go, that's why he goes to hell. I mean, you know, we're dealing with a not good person who's killed. The collateral damage is what renders him hellbound. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. But also, it's unclear whether he like needs any help getting to hell because his boss has already made a deal with the devil, Martin Sheen, to to kill him. No, the devil's not Martin Sheen though. The the devil's this weird Chihuahua thing. Right, an insect werewolf made in Microsoft Word, like you said. Um, <laughs> Martin Sheen, the the director of the not CIA, has made a deal with the devil's helper, this clown demon called Violator, played by John Leguizamo, um, to kill Al Simmons, send him to hell so Al Simmons can... Uh, become spawn and be the marshal of the devil's army which wants to take over the world because um to that premise i say huh imagine a substance with the power to destroy humanity imagine a creature insane enough to use it Imagine a hero on the verge of creation. From flesh to steel. You must visualize your objective. From blood to blade. Don't get cocky. You have a lot more to learn. From man to spawn. I also like the quote from... What is the name of the the Chihuahua Devil Dog Man? It's like Malabolgia. Mega- <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the deal the deal with the de- the devil. He's asking Al Simmons. He's saying something like, "If you need my army, you can see Wanda again." <laughs> and the fact that her name is Wanda and keeps coming up as like this this big like McGuffey McGuffin thing that he needs to you know, return to right. and to hear Malabolgia talking about Wanda. Uh, let me ask you, let's work. talk about Wanda. Yeah. Let's talk about Wanda. So Wanda's his wife, but they don't really have anything other than like, they seem to meet for dinner every once in a while, even though he's like going to be in Norway or wherever the fucking in Korea, taking out some fucking, uh, <laughs> 
uh, what is it? It's like a disease, a virus. It's a a biological weapon factory or something. And then so, but then she somehow becomes his driving force to like get his revenge. Let me ask you this. So Wanda in the five or six years or whatever that he's gone in hell with the shadow learning how to be gross. um, (laughs) She moves on with his partner and then she has a kid with the partner, right? It's not it's not his kid. Right, no, it's yeah. And that you know, I I don't think it was uh, you know, a, a requited love in the same I don't think if she was like in hell and Malabolge was like, You could see Al Simmons again. I don't think she would be like, definitely, whatever you want me, yes, I'll lead your army. I think she'd be like, I don't need to see Al Simmons anymore. I'm fine. Where did you send me to like a medium place? Right. Right. She moved on to like a completely fine, sort of grounded seeming guy, and they had a kid, and they he, she didn't miss that psychopath Al Simmons. No, no, Why she's doing she? just fine. Like they have they have a lovely life. I mean, ruthless killer or this like middle management paper pusher guy, <laughs> yeah, who like does like a pretty nice birthday party for his kid, other than the psychotic they demon really clown. Health insurance. Yeah. yeah, exactly. She's doing fine. It just seems like such an easy thing to give him. Like he doesn't have anything other than like he's murdered thousands of people probably. And his like thing is like, Oh, I'd like to get back to my wife who like, I don't see that often. (laughs) (laughs) No. Wanda. He yells Wanda as he tumbles to hell. There's a lot of Wanda, you know, emotive screaming. That's like half of his dialogue. So guys, (sighs) Okay, quick, quick, quick side note. Um, I got to talk last week to uh, Rick Baker, who's like this practical effects pioneer. He did like uh, Harry, yeah, and the sure. Hen- Harry and yeah. the Hendersons and American Werewolf in London. And mm-hmm. I was talking to him about digital, and I was like, I don't want to start a fight, Rick, but like, what irks you about digital? And he was like, nothing. I like technology. I like film. But the fact is that after Jurassic Park, every single visual effects artist just looked at us like we were dinosaurs. And I was just like, you That's guys. That's a great joke. First of all, yeah, that's um, a great that's a great little pun from creature creator Rick Baker. A good dinosaur joke right there. And what he said <laughs> was, "What you guys don't." I realize, give that joke a good good. <laughs> what you guys don't realize is that in twenty years, Harry from Harry and the Hendersons is going to look good, and your stuff is going to look like shit. And I feel like he was talking about the movie Spawn because, yes. like, this is this is maybe the worst like digital effects I've ever seen in a movie reviewed for the podcast. Spawn is literally what you get when you like had that douchey kid in high school and we took like computer class together and it's like, make a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> like this is what he comes up with. Like spawn and the letters are all rocks and then they explode. Yeah. And they ooze. There's a lot of, yeah, ooze. they ooze, they ooze first and then they explode. And then he has to talk to the teacher after class. And you don't see so much of that kid anymore. No. Right. They sent him off to the technical high school. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, this is I, there's there. I don't think we reviewed a worse looking movie in a hundred and nine episodes of this podcast. Well, that's the thing. It feels it feels low budget. It doesn't just feel like over reliant on digital effects. It's like. Okay, so what do we need for this movie? Well, we shot our whole wad on making it look like Michael Jai White's burned the whole time. What about like just an alleyway or like an old church? And like that's it. And the rest of it we'll do in the computer. And that's this movie. I will say that if they're trying to like approximate what hell is like, and I'm not talking about like the crazy CGI portion that like lawnmower man background, but the the part where they're in that weird alley church thing and John Leguizamo is there. Like, I'm pretty sure that that, that would be my hell is being in this one weird set with these people and having demon clown John Leguizamo hanging out with me. I like viscerally felt, uh, Oh yeah, this is hell. Like, I don't think that's what they're going for exactly, but it, it worked in a different way Definitely. than every other indication, you know, depiction of hell with just like fire and flames and torture. Like this is torture. Like I don't want to, I can't look at you for two minutes. Hell to me is a place where with John Leguizamo as a clown. Yeah. Where John Leguizamo's in like a Jiminy Glick fat suit, pretending he's an <laughs> evil clown. Right. Making like dick jokes to you. Like, like really hell. offensive dick jokes. Yeah. 
do you guys feel like his experience on the set of this movie allowed Michael Jai White 11 years later to very credibly deliver the line in Dark Knight, enough from the clown? Yeah, maybe oh, he's been saying that for... I didn't get that either. That's I think he waited joke. 11 years to yell that. I give that reference a good good. <laughs> Thank you. If we respect on some level that the shadow could have been bad good because of like the weird moments of funniness, I think some people argue that this movie is like respectably nightmarish. I don't think I agree with that. I don't think that this movie is like 1997's Mandy. I don't think there's anything artful about this movie at all. But I think some people do feel like it is... Uh, intentionally fucked up and is getting that right. I don't buy it, but some people think so. What do you guys think? No. No. <laughs> Great. Let's move on. I, I think it's just bad. I think, I, well, I, you know what? I think John Leguizamo is doing exactly what he is being asked to do. Like, You're right. I think he, he's, he commits to that more than anyone commits to any role in any of these movies. And God love him for it. It's horrifying and really unfun yeah. to watch. And I like I felt myself just needing to look away from the screen for most of it. Just but that's, doing Pennywise, but with pop culture that, references. Maybe that gets also back to like some of these comic book properties with such a cult or not even cult, like an ardent fandom kind of a base of people who are expecting something very faithful and very specific. You're you're trying to, I guess, please them first and foremost, but maybe that makes for a really bad movie because, you know, something that works as this dark, weird comic book that's shared by this, you know, base of people. And it, it, it the first spawn would sell like 2 million copies. It wasn't, you know, this tiny niche thing. Um, but it, it's not fun to watch and maybe they should have strayed from the source material a little bit more. I don't know. I feel like I, I do want to throw back to what we talked about earlier, um, which is that I don't like most comic book movies because they feel like they are more on the fundamentalist side than the thinking about what characters and heroes and anti-heroes mean side. And this movie is definitely not thinking about like what redemption could mean for Al Simmons or like how good of a person was he in the first place or is there anything for him on earth besides Wanda like, or should I consider the audience at all in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> Which, it's such a rudderless film. It doesn't really have a point. And then that sort of muddles, like, what this universe is. Yeah. But there's just so, there's such poor choices made in the, like, the directing, too. Like, why do we need to, like, see over and over again these, like, horrible visual things you know like it's diminishing returns on how like burned and gross and like how gross john leguizamo is it's it just becomes hard to to just palette can we can we talk about the fact that martin sheen is in this movie as the main bad guy it's martin yeah. sheen doing like the his first of all his name is jason which is never Martin Sheen's name. He's not named Jason. Nobody born before this, 1970 is named Jason. No, and he's got this facial. He's sort of, the whole movie, actually, I was going to say he looks like this sort of bad Skinamax, you know, softcore porn villain. But the whole movie is kind of a, a Skinamax movie, except instead of, like, softcore porn every so often, it's just burnt flesh and right. awful demonic clown, which is the worst of all right. possible worlds right there. I'd rather review it. porn. Yeah, clearly. Right. I mean, Martin, she clearly like prayed to the devil to this one. It was just like, please, I'll do Spawn if you give me the West Wing in a few years. <laughs> in just a few years. Wow, quite a turnaround for him. Two years later, he was uh, Jedediah Bartlett. He's the president. Wow. That's right. Uh, well, let's talk no further about this movie, please. Uh, bad, bad, bad. It's definitely a bad, bad. <laughs> it's unquestionably bad, bad. Um, it's 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 hor it's unwatchable. Don't watch it. So, this is 2004. It is Guillermo del Toro, definitely the best director of our three today. Not that his competition is particularly stiff. Um, this when did Hellboy start? This is also like a 90s um, comic. Uh, Adam, what was going on in the 90s with all this demonic stuff? Any thoughts in general about, like, why we tried so much dark, hellbound stuff around this time and not just I, Marvel? 
I, you know, I think some of it was, so both, you talked, Noah, in the beginning about the, like the beginnings of indie superhero movies and both of, both these films, at least Hellboy and, uh, and, and Spawn come from these independent comic labels. Uh, Spawn was from Image Comics, which was formed in like the early nineties and Hellboy was Dark Horse Comics, which was like in the mid eighties. And they're, they're both, you know, there's like a million and a half stories, if you look at the golden and silver age of comics, of like these writers and artists uh, being like screwed out of money or, I mean, they were doing works for hire for these other people and more often than not, they got their rights taken or they, you know, they ended up doing all this work and creating these iconic characters and they would, you know, they would die penniless and destitute or at least really pissed off. Um, and I think both of these comic companies were coming out of a period where a bunch of Marvel and DC guys got together and they were, well, in the case of image, a bunch of the best of the best of the Marvel and DC guys were like, fuck you. We're out. And they started image comics as this creator owned company where they were finally able to not just maintain the status quo of these famed Marvel and DC superheroes that they were constantly rebooting but they were actually able to just do weird shit. And for whatever reason, weird shit means monsters and hell. And, you know, these, these things, they probably just couldn't get away with totally at, at Marvel and DC, these, these big corporate entities. So they were, Hmm. um, I guess going for it and that's the form it took. So in the history of movies, we're a little further along here. Oh, four is like uh, Spider-Man two. So, and we're still four years away from the, the true Marvel wave, but we're definitely out of 90s. The effects are much, much better. Um, this movie opens in during World War II um, when there's like a special ops mission led by this like professor of the occult, Bruttenholm, played later by John Hurt when he's an old man. Um, and it's like sort of like Raiders of the Lost Ark. Either like Hitler is a nut about the occult, uh, and it turns out haven't he you is. seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? <laughs> right. Um, so they come to this weird structure, um, and uh, <laughs> Rasputin, <laughs> Rasputin is trying to open a portal to hell. They couldn't. They couldn't get Genghis Khan's <laughs> grandson. So exactly. Like, what's Rasputin up to? Oh, he's. He's available yeah, for Genghis this project. Genghis Khan was stuck being FedExed from <laughs> Mongolia to the New York <laughs> Museum of Natural History. Rasputin, though, uh, does not care at all what's happening on the Eastern Front of the war. He's totally down to help the Nazis. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> he cares my, nothing for the tragedy of Stalingrad. Yeah. Um, so Haven't you seen Enemy at the Gates? <laughs> Which also has Ron Perlman in it. Look at you. Ah. I give that reference a good good. Um, so, yeah, they're trying to open the portal to hell. <laughs> and uh, and then wha- Spawn comes out. <laughs> no. Uh, and they stop them. They stop the Hitler's Darth Vader top assassin. They stop Rasputin. They stop the woman to whom Rasputin gives immortal life with a touch of his hand. Um, and they close that portal, except Hellboy gets through, and he's this uh, little little baby demon, Ador- adorable um, little devil boy. Yeah, with one giant right fist, which becomes just totally essential for punching through walls. So this um, is a great example, real quick, of that a dialogue thing that people try and stay faithful to in these in these comics. And I have no idea if this was an actual line of dialogue, but when they see his giant hand that you just talked about. Yeah. It's like this really, at the end of this really intense Nazi battle scene, and this like soldiers, like very loudly, they pan to him, and he's like, wow, look at the size of that whammer. <laughs> it's like, why, why does that line have to be in this thing? Well, like, you couldn't have come up with a better line of dialogue. You felt like that needed this yeah. one extra who has one line gets to say that. Like His friend what, just what got a mortar shell through his head. That? Like, that... Right. It, that's the thing you're going to focus on right now is the size of that whammer. And who, the, what are you talking about? That, from amazing. that moment, I, I was like, oh, I've just Jesus. seen everyone that I know die. Look at the size <laughs> of that kid's whammer. <laughs> oh my God. Um, so then we fast forward 
50 years. Um, Rasputin is immediately uh, <laughs> risen from the dead in a really cool looking scene, I have to say. There's some oh, great set design amazing. here. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah, that was beautiful. Um, yeah, but, I don't think the question that I had with this movie was so much like, how did things happen? But more like, why? Right, right. <laughs> why is... Like, why did Rasputin come back 50 years later when, like, of course, the same people are doing the same stuff and... Yeah. I don't know. Why was that guy full of sand, you know? Right. Well, it goes back to, like, I don't understand the rule. This is the one maybe more than any, even more than Spawn, where I just don't, I don't get the rules of the game we're playing here. Like, and so it makes me, it makes it really hard to, like, be into even any of the fight scenes because it's like, oh, well, this guy can only be killed if you throw a Super Bowl at his head really hard. But this guy, you know, the world could explode and he's fine. And I don't, I don't, I don't get what I'm working with at any time. And it's also the whole thing's like, it's sort of like Harry Potter in that it's like secret that there's like magic people. Sure. We can't let the muggles know. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other magic person, in addition to Hellboy, who at this point has uh, become government property, but still kind of behaves like a like a teenager uh, in the, this walled in department of defense. The other uh, magic person is, is Selma Blair, who, uh, what is her character's name? Fire well, girl. Well, don't forget Abe Sapien. But oh, go, sorry. But go, but go Excuse ahead. me. Excuse voiced me. by David Hyde Pierce. Right. Played by Doug Jones, but voiced by David Hyde Pierce. Who is very clearly 90% of the shape of water character. Yeah. Okay, oh yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. All they Mixed. do is, change his skin and give him different eyes and that's the shape of waterfish um, right that's what guillermo said after wrapping this one it was just like we should just do one of them with the <laughs> with the fish um yeah so doug jones is uh that fish and then selma blair has uh pyrokinetic powers that she can't control uh and hellboy is in love with her um but she's she's in an institution um the plot is both like like all of these movies like overly complicated, but also kind of dumb. And I feel like because this one is so much technically better than the other ones, it it does like ask you to like look for the holes a little bit more as opposed to just acknowledging that it's a mess. And that's that's sort of frustrating in this movie. Do you do you need both Rasputin and Sand Nazi? I don't think so. And Squid Army? I don't think so. All right, Squid Army. <laughs> yeah, so, okay. You have Rasputin, but he's just like a vessel for like what is otherwise like a big octopus that's living inside him that if Hellboy doesn't make the right choice in the end, he like loses this like game of you can use my body and live as long as I live forever kind of thing with right. the octopus thing. What? <laughs> huh? If you're going to get Rasputin, commit. Get him to talk some shit on the Romanovs. Get him to spin some, uh, you know, geopolitical What does he feel talk. about the Matthew Weiner Amazon series? <laughs> does he think it's overdone? Right. Is it taking advantage of the anthology style? Should they really be 90 minutes an episode? <laughs> Welcome to the Bureau for Paranormal Research and Defense. There are things that go bump in the night, Agent Myers. And we are the ones who bump back. Hellboy. Well, come on in. Meet the rest of the family. Abraham Sapien. Liz Schumann. It's a beautiful name. Don't worry, boy scout. She'll take care of you. These freaks. They give me the creeps. Really? Every time the media gets a look at him, they come running to me. I'm running out of life. If there's trouble, all us freaks have is each other. I really like John Hurt as uh, yeah. he's the, the of the three or of all of like the really good actors that have no business being in these movies. And this is when, you know, this is after X-Men, the first X-Men and Blade and, you know, the first Spider-Man and Hulk with, with, uh, What's, yeah, th- thank you. I mean, this is when like real actors are starting to be in these movies legitimately. Uh, and John Hurt, I like the little Elephant Man throwback. You know, you have this sort of freak show, hidden right. people, and there's a nice, I think, in joke with with the Elephant Man. 
Um, and he does a really good job and it's, he's, he kind of saves it for me. Whereas Jeffrey Tambor and the fucking main character kid who I don't even know who, what his name is or what he's doing other than just taking up like a little bit of real estate in this movie. But why, why is he, why is he a a person? I've, I've less ability to believe him or Jeffrey Tambor as real characters than like the Squid Army, I believed the Squid Army hook, line, and sinker. I did not believe Jeffrey Tambor for a second. That John Myers character, the Rupert Evans kind of like the Boy Scout who becomes his handler, that really needs to be like Martin Freeman or somebody like with some more comedic chops, but who is sort of like good looking and can still create the tension with some or literally but... anything. I mean, what is <laughs> his, his, a... his purpose is that he's supposed to be like pure of heart or something and teach this giant Hellboy. <laughs> figure how to be a man and he's like this like 21 year old kid who like tries to mac on his girlfriend immediately right and starts to like openly weep when he like gets hit by a rock on the back of the head yeah what is his purpose someone threw that and it wasn't fair (laughs) brother how are you gonna deal with rasputin (laughs) i'm gonna fire my gun wildly until hellboy fixes it And then Jeffrey Tambor is maybe my worst, my least favorite character in any movie, which is the character that's always like, I don't believe this for a second. No, the the like, it's like there's a giant devil man with filed horns in front of you, and he's like, uh uh-uh, uh uh uh, nope, (laughs) you you get back here, Hellboy, you're out of control. Yeah, you know, like, and he does that not for like ten minutes, but for literally like ninety or a hundred minutes, he maintains that like incredulous you know, uh, overbearing father figure kind of thing. And I would like that character to be retired from all movies and just let us, let us. It just seems to be like the cynical person in the audience's stand in. It's like, well, yeah, they're going to be a Hellboy. Why are you you in this fucking theater? Yeah. Maybe you need better friends. Like if they pulled you into this and it's not your cup of tea. I thought this movie was going to be better because of Guillermo del Toro, who I think of sort of as like an interesting storyteller more than just like blatant visualist. Hmm. But in this one, it's so convoluted. And maybe this was his deal with the devil to like do something else? Question mark. I don't know. Or maybe this was his like pan's labyrinth into Hollywood kind of like, here I am, guys. Like, what's up? But... He had done Blade or Blade Two, I think, okay. before this, and so maybe they're like, just get hit. He did good with Blade Two. Do it, have him do some weirder, and that maybe you're right. Maybe that was like his stepping. He's like, all right, now they'll let me do my own shit. Pan's Labyrinth is after this. That's yeah. so interesting. I really do think of him as a visualist, though, and I think there are moments in this movie that are incredibly striking. The whole thing of the ridiculous thing where John Hurt has to. Uh, do an autopsy on the sand Nazi, and to no one in particular, he's like, "This man was addicted to surgeries. That's why he, he has moved no- his lips and his eyelids." <laughs> like, who are you talking to, and how do you know that? Um, but the whole reason they have that scene is so Guillermo can give him and his visual effects people some more shine and be like, "Why don't we have this thing stand up with a plastic bag on? Because that is gonna look baller." And he's right, it does. But I, th- I think of GDT perpetually as this guy who's chasing the visions of his inner child. Um, and the good parts of that are, I partner with Doug Jones forever, I make the coolest creatures. And the bad parts are, and sometimes my creatures smash each other. And that's not, that specific rim, that's something where any league average director can make creatures smash each other. And there's just too much of that in this movie to keep it distinctly tourist or interesting. Yeah, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thank you. Yep. No, you're right. You're, I think you're right. But I think the CGI had come of age enough that you could actually go for it. And I yeah. mean, it looks dated by today's standards and it'll look even more dated in 10 years. But, you know, you could that's make a squid think... army and you couldn't have 10 years earlier. Yeah. But that's this is why I think that the Marvel movies excel above these kinds of indies and even the DC movies is because the Marvel movies never forget that you need a good story at the root of your good characters. You need something interesting and logical for them to do. So even if it's just like a kid trying to get to homecoming, you know, or this guy trying to manage his personal relationships after he gets like kidnapped by terrorists and has to put like a fake heart vehicle thing in his chest. Like these are 
real human dramas. Like with this one this week, and even with like, you know, other Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro movies or, you know, all these sort of 90s comic book movies, there's just, the spectacle becomes more interesting than the characters on the screen. And like, that's just so boring. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And, and that's you... why you should pick up Adam Nemet's We Can Save Us All. <laughs> but seriously. Available... In Stores Tuesday, wherever In fine books Tuesday. are sold. Let's rate this movie. I'm going to go, I'll go first with a sort of an, unex- I don't know if this is unexpected. I think this movie is kind of weirdly a good bad. I think that the that the Hellboy costume and the way that it's photographed and what Ron Perlman brings to it is so distinct that I was like excited to check this out and I think there are like five or six like really amazing like shots that are kind of indelible in my memory after seeing this movie um but like I don't need to watch it again and I don't need to probably watch the second one and I don't feel much uh, anticipation for the David Harbour Neil Marshall reboot so good bad a polite good bad I will agree with you um yeah, I think there's probably a lot of technical achievement in this movie, and that's all great. And I, but I, that doesn't do much for me in terms of entertainment value. Uh, so I, I'm not going to watch it again. It's so weird that they're remaking this, you know, not even... Well, I guess it's been 15 years since the original. God, we're getting really fucking old, man. <laughs> the, the, I read that the... First, uh, first look test screening reviews are terrible for the new Hellboy, unfortunately. Oh yeah, it's due uh, out next year. Yeah. Um, you what know, about I, the new Spawn with Jamie Foxx? Well, what are the people saying I about don't, that? I don't. I don't think we know yet. But oh. uh, Spawn I, with Jamie Foxx is something I'm looking forward to because there's you can't be any worse than this. Okay. <laughs> what I learned about the new Spawn is that the guy, it's I think it is Todd McFarlane writing and directing. It's the yeah, the guy who did the comic is directing it, and he is focusing on this other character named Twitch, which doesn't even show up. I think in the 1997 version, and Spawn like is almost never seen, much like the Shadow, and when he shows up, and All right. I think it, it, the, the McFarlane said he wanted to approach it like Jaws, where you barely ever see the monster and it's told through the, the eyes of someone else, which maybe has a shot of being better than that other travesty. I, I also think similar to Batman, there was a good uh, animated series apparently on HBO, which I missed oh, right. a spawn animated series, which was very well received. I hear um, we're off topic. We're rating this movie. Aren't we? Yeah. Well, uh, we both said good, bad. What do you say, Adam? You know, I think it's a bad, I, I want to give every movie a good because I think it's just amazing to make a movie. I think when you look at something like this and just the ambition of it, like we're so jaded now with, with everything that can be created that we're like, nah, no. And, yeah. and I, I think even like any three of these movies, just the fact that it's like made and it gets through the production process. I just find that really amazing. But, um, I don't know. It was. I thought it was a bad. Thing. You watched Spawn, right? We, we all saw bad, Spawn. But like, someone was like, "We're gonna fucking go for it, and it's gonna be this." And everyone else around was like, "Bravo! Yes, I'm all on board." I think John Leguizamo shouted that, and no one responded. <laughs> <laughs> but they got to the end, and like, they they brought it across the finish line. It was a bad movie, but the fact that it was made, I think, is. Uh, any movie impresses me that gets made pretty much. And maybe because I made a really low budget movie, you know, that, that, that probably took six years off my life. Uh, I have like, I have a, a fear of the, of that, of making a movie ever, ever again. And so anyone who's able to do it is kind of just intrinsically impressive to me. Um, but th- I didn't think this was fun to watch. And, um, I think it was probably bad, bad. You know what else is hard to get across the finish line? Podcasts. And we, us three, we deserve your admiration for getting this off the, this spawn-like uh, um, endeavor off the ground. Uh, Adam Nomad, thanks for being on the show, man. Congrats on your book. Thanks for having me. I really love what you guys do. I listen to your podcast all the time, and it's, it keeps me company in, in the car. It keeps me company on plane rides, and I just find you guys uh, a lot of fun and really interesting and really funny to listen to. It's my favorite podcast, so... 
I feel like uh, like I'm fanboying out here, being being part of it for the first time. So thank you guys for having me. Of course, you well, can, thank you for being part of it. You can listen to us anywhere in a box with a fox <laughs> at berealpodcast.com. Uh, you can find it on uh, Instagram or Twitter. Uh, yeah. This, this is episode 109, and we're going to keep it rolling. Uh, you can find uh, We Can Save Us All in stores in the middle of, or online in the middle of November. And uh, Noah Ballard, always nice to see you, buddy. Nice to see you too, Chance. Adam, thanks for coming on. What a pleasure. Stuck around St. Petersburg When I saw it was a time for a change Killed the saw and its ministers Hey